Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. This show is brought to you by NABPAC, the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. I am your host, Michaela Isler, NABPAC's Executive Director. It's 2021, and as we tape this first show of the new year, the presidency of Joe Biden is one day old. It is a new day in Washington, D.C., and a new Congress is beginning its work. The impact of the violence that swept through our nation's capital on January 6th is something that all of us will be dealing with for some time to come, Adam Belmar. I agree, Michaela. The pain of that day was profound on so many levels, and the fallout is being felt on a multitude of levels as well. There's no escaping the truth that actions matter and that language matters and that consequences and course corrections are essential in business and in politics. Yeah, and the focus over the past two weeks on our community, the business and PAC community, has been intense. As the leader of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees, I want all of our listeners to know that I see courage and leadership and deep introspection nearly everywhere I look. Our members are rising up to this moment and demonstrating, once again, that they are essential parts of their organizations and that what they do and who they support and why really matters. I have seen more front page news about employee funded PACs in 2021 than ever before. The voices of the men and women of America's top companies have echoed through our country. And this is what leadership and strength looks like. There are important questions to examine about candidate support criteria and alignment between values and interests. But the inherently transparent and accountable tenants of PACs make this whole exercise credible and accessible for everyone, especially the news media, Michaela. And that is a really great thing. It's one of the facts about PACs that we've been talking about the most on this podcast. It is, Adam. And we will continue to do that with even more energy and more voices from our industry as we move through this year. And it is exactly where we'll start on this first episode of the new year with two deeply experienced and widely regarded experts, Dr. Stephen Billett, Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, and David Schild, Adjunct Professor at GW's Graduate School of Political Management. Our conversation about the state of employee-funded PACs is coming right up. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NABPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. Today's episode is brought to you by Chainbridge Bank. Looking for a financial partner who actually understands PACs? End the frustration by crossing the bridge to better banking with Chainbridge Bank, a group who specializes in the financial needs of the corporate and association PAC space. Chainbridge Bank. They know PACs. Thanks, Adam, and special thanks to Chainbridge Bank for their support of this show, our association, and our industry. So, Adam, the headline from the Washington Post this week seems to capture the current moment for the PAC space, and I quote, Lawmakers who objected to election results have been cut off from 20 of their 30 biggest corporate PAC donors. U.S. executives continue to grapple with the political bloodshed and its ripple effect on the corporate landscape. But Adam, the truth about what has been done and said goes much deeper than just a headline. And while many stories have accurately reported the facts about PACs, there have been many more that have missed the mark. We have spent the days since January 6th bringing PAC managers from across the country together. The facts and actions taken by each of these groups has been unique. 
Our guests today, Dr. Stephen Billet and David Schild, have been leaders in the room during important times like these. Gentlemen, welcome to the Facts About PACs podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Thank you. So much has happened in the last two weeks. Steve, I'll start with you. Can this moment prove better than ever how important PAC membership is to engage employees and trade association members to participate in public policy? Well, I, I think we, we're at a point just now where PACs really don't have a choice. I think they have to step up to the issue just now if they haven't already. Uh, it's now become apparent that corporations are expected to play a leading role in the defense of our democracy, or at least it seems to be the case. And that's one of the responses we've seen by some of these PACs. I'm not sure they've all gotten it right, but it's certainly a reflection of of that fact, where unlike the old days, when corporations looked at their activities and said, look, we provide jobs, we pay our taxes, that's enough. We're good citizens based on that alone. Well, employee-funded PACs and the employees that that fund them, I don't believe are willing to accept that anymore. And I think that's a reflection or reflected in some of the news coverage we've seen here. What we've seen too uh, is obviously a response. And like I said, I'm not sure we've gotten it right. And I'm not sure that we really have good examples that might provide a way forward here. The last few times we've seen stuff like this, PACs put something in place or they put some sort of a policy in place to cut off money from individual members. And then after a period of time, everybody sort of pretended to forget after whatever, six months or so. I'm not so sure that that's a luxury that will be available to PACs going forward. You know, Dave, as I was listening to Steve's response, I was thinking that we had more civic participation across our country in this last cycle than ever before in modern history. And even the response from the news and internally to what's going on with employee-funded PACs says to me that people get that these groups are important, that the brands that they represent and the individual employees' voices are really being heard. Is that what you see, or am I projecting a bit? Certainly, there's been a transformation about the way that companies face the marketplace and what customers, consumers expect out of those businesses. I think what's really interesting now is the organizations that are the most mature understand that there are really two audiences in a time of crisis like this. There are your individual contributors. There are the folks that fund your PACs, right? These are employee political action committees, and that's important for everyone to understand. And you have to speak to that audience and say, what are we doing with your money? Are we being good stewards of the dollars that you have trusted us with? The other audience is obviously an external audience, and it consists sometimes of your customers, uh, whether you're in the B2C or the B2B space. Uh, And of course, it also includes your critics, those people who have been gunning for you for a while. Uh, And it includes the media who are, I think, shining a very bright light on corporate America. And so how you speak to those audiences belies the importance of strategy and also coordination. You may be, if you're running a corporate PAC, solely responsible for those organizational communications, for talking to your members about what you're doing with those dollars, why your organization exists, how it's governed. But when you talk externally, In most mature organizations, you're going to need some coordination with your corporate communications team, perhaps with folks who are responsible for crisis communications, specifically with your government relations office. 
And so I think the most mature organizations have that kind of coordination and strategy going on in what I think we can fairly call a, a moment of crisis. Steve, we've talked a lot about here at NABPAC, just a great deal about transparency. And on the show, we've talked a lot about it. How critical in your experience, even prior to being at GW, are the bylaws and guidelines that govern PAC? And really, can you speak to the role that PAC boards play in times like these? Well, I think that bylaws are exceedingly important. While you don't necessarily have to have bylaws in place, I think that it's important that you use your bylaws to enshrine the most important values, those that reflect the values of the sponsor organization, the government affairs group in particular. The role of a board just now, I think, is particularly important. Whatever decisions you've made with your PAC going forward, I think now would be a very good time to issue a letter from your board that endorses the actions you've taken and reflects upon the values that are enshrined in your articles of organization. Dave, you have a unique background here because not only are you adjunct professor at GW, but you also have over two decades of experience inside running PACs, strategic communications, external affairs. You know, we've come a long way in 20 years as a PAC community. I'd love to hear your take on the transparency, the role that PAC boards play, coordinating with internal communications and your crisis comms teams. Well, one of the things that you know, I've observed is that folks are not just going to hand over their money anymore to uh, an employee pack, right? They want some say in what's going on and they want to be kept in the loop about what's occurring. And one of the ways that you demonstrate good governments to your employees, good stewardship, as I said, of the dollars that you give them is through that pack board. And I think now is not a time to be silent with that audience. I think the best organizations are going to be saying to people, we recognize that this is a moment of crisis. Here are the actions that we have taken. And they're going to be listening to the feedback that their members are giving them. Some of that's going to split along political lines. A lot of it is going to be strong feedback because we're all having strong emotions about what's going on in the public sphere. And I think a good PAC manager is going to look at those pieces of feedback. They're going to take them to their board and they're going to act accordingly, but not presumptuously, right? Not necessarily a knee-jerk reaction, but a contemplative look at what are we doing? What have we been doing? What have we been telling our members? One of the great things about PAC communication is it's education at the same time. And if you're constantly talking to your members about why do we exist? What needs do we service? How do we take care of the money that you entrust us with? Then when you arrive at a moment of crisis like this, you don't necessarily have an existential problem because your members already know, hey, I understand what they're doing in Washington with the money that I've trusted them with. I understand the purpose of this organization. Now would be a bad time for people to look at their pay stub and all of a sudden discover that they're giving to the pack. So I think for a lot of folks, the legwork that has been done over the previous months and years, it's going to pay off now in uh, an audience, in an employee base, in a group of supporters that say, I understand you. I trust you. I know what you're doing. Tell me how you're dealing with this particular moment. You know, Michaela, we heard this past week from a lot of the PAC managers who are part of NABPAC that the phone is ringing, that they are hearing from individual colleagues at their businesses who have questions. And they've almost to a person said that every time they pick up that phone or are able to ring back and begin to have an honest conversation and answer questions, that fears are allayed, that there is an ability to 
rebuild confidence that might have just been shaken, as Steve said, and Dave echoed, there's always a part of education in PAC communication for fellow employees. But when you have a question, you need an answer. And this is a time when our communicators within our management of PAC groups are really going that extra mile and taking the time to talk. And it's making a difference. We can't stop doing that now. Really is. I think Dave's point about this is the time to be leaning in and communicating. You know, what we're reading and hearing in the news, you know, often is not accurate. And 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 so taking that time to really have those one-on-one conversations with your donors is so important. And it, it is helping in, in explaining why an organization is involved in the process. And, and also, despite what we're hearing in the media, again, to Dave's point, I mean, the PAC managers are being incredibly thoughtful in this moment and really taking it seriously to go back and ensure that the bylaws, the contribution criteria, the policies and procedures that they have in place are sound. Um, and so that really kind of leads me to my next question uh, for you, Steve. You know, the um, evaluation of a candidate for support by a PAC is a pretty complex process. What, in your opinion, are the best examples of how that process should work and what enhancements folks should be looking into right now? As you suggested, criteria that we employ in this exercise generally has included a series of variables related to the importance of an individual member to the enterprise based on their position in the Congress, on committees and leadership, based on their tendency to support the agenda of individual companies. And then we would factor in variables associated with presence of employees in a district. What we may be seeing now, it relates to a point I made earlier, is that there's now or may now be an expectation that goes beyond those initial criteria and relates to the extent to which a member of Congress reflects some of the fundamental values about our constitution, our democracy, and the roles that institutions play in supporting those values. That would be a really interesting component here. Clearly, a few PACs have made a decision about that. Again, I'm not so sure that it was a well-thought-out decision, but we now find ourselves in a place where maybe some PACs want to adopt some sort of incorporation of those notions in the way it goes about evaluating members of Congress. What I always did and what I've always recommended, and I think Dave probably did some of this too, was that at the beginning of any Congress, they would create tiers of members of Congress based on those evaluations and some sort of scoring that they would assign to individual members. So you could look at 535 members of Congress and come up with a rating one through 535. Adding some of these other criteria that relate to an individual's support for our democratic institutions would surely complicate that process. Dave, I do think that there is a trend. I mean, we're seeing many PAC managers looking for the right criteria to include these values-based issues. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the great thing about a set of criteria is it forces a discussion on your team about how are we going to support members and, and for what reason. And it sort of 
protects you and your employee contributors. And I'm speaking beyond just the crisis that's occurring right now against sort of the individual fiat of, let's say, one member of your Washington office or one executive. And it gives people a trust that these decisions are being made based on some established criteria. Now, different organizations are going to have different criteria. You may pass people through a sort of legislative filter where they say, let's look at our voting history. That seems like a common criteria that I've seen inside of a lot of PACs you may be a little bit more vague with labels like pro-business, pro-industry, pro-growth. That certainly gives organizations a, a little bit more wiggle room when they want to make decisions. But a consistent set of criteria will mean that each member is getting, or each candidate, I should say, is getting a fair shake, is getting equal treatment. And I've certainly sat around those tables when those kinds of evaluations are being made. And it does force sometimes the hard conversations about, does this person still pass through these criteria? And can we look to our contributors and say, we believe that after applying a fair set of guidelines that we've made the right decision about where to give our candidates support? We've always got to remember that accountability is a two-way street. Candidates and donors always have to be able to reassess and know the score. It's exactly why being vigilant and professional about political programs is so important. Thinking about what you both have just said, it seems to be a little bit about what's necessary and sufficient. You can meet a lot of these criteria and still not be acceptable. And the, the accountability isn't just we're holding candidates accountable, but donors holding the pack accountable all the way around. So my question is, what advice do you have for PAC managers as they're reaffirming their roles, both internally and externally, when we think about accountability? I've always suggested and always taught, and I know that Dave did the same thing when he's taught the PAC management class, is that the PAC manager has to be the go-to guy or gal inside every government affairs organization when it comes to campaign finance issues. They have to know the rules. They have to know the processes. They have to help construct and get sign off on whatever criteria that they use. But they need to be deeply aware of all of the moral and other questions that are going to come up over the question of contributions for individuals by that organization. They need to spend all of their time focused on that to make sure that they are seen as the preeminent source of information on these issues. And this is difficult, obviously, inside many government affairs organizations, since PAC managers don't tend to assume very high position inside the organization. This, I think, is a situation where you earn your way to become sort of the preeminent source of information and you study. You spend a good deal of time looking at these issues, examining their implications for your organization and their impact on the values you represent. Yeah, I couldn't agree with Steve more that you are sitting at the nexus of so many functions within a corporation when you are managing the PAC. And it's not enough now to suddenly say to the Office of General Counsel, to the head of corporate communications, to the board and its governance committees, I'm the source. You have to have been doing the legwork again for the previous weeks and months and years to establish yourself with that expertise. But don't assume that anyone else whose full-time job is directed somewhere else is going to understand these issues as well as you do. Be a resource so that when someone brings you bad numbers from a reporter who hasn't done their legwork, you can say, those actually aren't the contribution limits. Let me set you straight on that. 
or when someone paints with a broad brush about what corporate America is doing, you say, hold on, I can tell you block by block what corporate America is actually doing in this space. And so you have an opportunity, I mean, candidly in that role to counsel so many senior leaders of the organization. And it adds so much value to the discussion to have that depth and breadth. Dave is exactly right. Now's the time to be the expert, to lean in with your executives. Here at NAPAC, we provide a lot of resources and data around what the rest of the industry is doing. Being able to share that information internally is is helpful so that they can make informed decisions. And it's no different now in this crisis. You know, you look at these organizations that have said, we're going to cut off anybody that decided not to certify. And, you know, I, I can't criticize that on my own, but you know, if, if you think about it, clearly no one's set up any criteria to allow for the restart of contributions. These organizations sort of put themselves in a box here now. Now you ask yourself, what do those 140 members of the House of Representatives need to do to get back in the good graces of these organizations? And without establishing some mechanism for these organizations to get back into the business. I mean, look, these are very important supporters of the business community. It could really have a serious impact on the long-term public policy program of an organization if they take these 140 members sort of out of play. I think it's also important to understand how we got here, right? How did the growth of you know the Washington office, the part of your organization that services Uh, your political engagement grow in the almost four decades since the Fair Election Campaign Act gave us sort of the rules and the structure to operate a separate segregated fund inside of a company. And what's going to be the future? Well, we got here because of regulation. We got here because the business community wanted to engage in the political process broadly, right? Not just with one tool in the toolkit, which is your political action committee, but with all the other tools. And you have to ask yourself going forward, what is the environment going to be like? Is there still going to be regulation? Are we still going to be seeking to petition the government for a redress of our grievances? For many of those organizations, the answer will be yes. And so uh, it's certainly a moment for pause and reflection. And forward-thinking people, I think, will say the environment over the last four decades that brought us here, it's going to be different, but it's not going to be absent. For some packs for some companies, the answer to a lot of these questions will be to step back. There will be some packs that cease to exist. And I want to ask you both, what happens in practical terms if employee-funded and trade association PACs cease to play a vital role in our electoral process? Are we ushering in more power to dark money organizations? How big a hit does transparency take, Steve? When you take a step back, you open the door for other funding alternatives. Now, those funding alternatives might include contributions from senior people inside the organization, which may help in the hit that the organization might take otherwise, since those contributions would be identified with the organization. But if you're stepping away and there aren't senior executive contributions in place, You may be opening the door for super PACs, dark money, other organizations to displace the role that your PAC contributions might otherwise have played in the electoral process. And, you know, let's face it, traditional PACs have seen decline in their overall 
contributions or the extent to which they represent a percentage of the overall contributions over the course of the last several cycles. And, you know, stepping away even further at this point may make those contributions less relevant. I think Steve's exactly right. Again, what's not going to change is the unmitigated growth in the cost of running for office in this country. We are not going to see an environment in which candidates across the board are spending less right across various media with their staffs with their organizations in order to seek federal office so it's hard for me to see an environment where one funding stream declines and yet that overall number also declines i think that that money is going to be displaced by funding from other sources and so then the question becomes under what rules do those sources operate what level of transparency apply to those sources different people will have different opinions about what the best tool for funding our elections is but it's hard for me to see an environment where you have less money in politics The question of the FCC lowest unit rate rules for PAC contributions or any contribution that goes directly to a campaign committee, I would think will continue to support the whole notion of PACs continuing to exist, even though the total amount of money they represent in the whole of the the electoral process may be in decline. You know, the fact that phenomenon, these lowest unit rate rules operate really amplifies the impact of PAC contributions to committees. And I think organizations need to be aware of that, Um, uh, especially when you think about groups that are in the business of funding super PACs or dark money operations, where TV stations charge an exorbitant rate for the purchase of airtime Uh, to those organizations compared to what's charged to committees when they buy airtime. Steve, I think those are really important points. And, you know, I'll just end with this. We've been saying since the beginning of this show and since the beginning of NAPAC, you shut out the most regulated form of participating in the process and you're now going to have less accountability, less transparent forms of giving and the very concerns that many of our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle have with corporate PACs is actually going to only be enhanced if you get rid of corporate PACs. And so we are really the reason why we started the Facts About PACs podcast to really explain why it's so important that our form of participating in the process remains the vehicle going forward, not to get rid of it. So I just will end with that. I want to thank both Dave and Steve for being with us today. Incredibly insightful, great perspective. A special note here for all of our amazing and talented listeners, this show is for you and we crave your feedback. If you want to join our program, please reach out. And if you have news that you want to share about your pack or a guest that you think would be right at home here, let us know. And as always, until next week, stay safe, stay engaged and keep moving forward. 